Well, a clinic core. Erin Gidel, Chisto, Firkin, Vulture, Ruth Glare, Agasaha, Saramhain, Saf Mavans, Saifi, and Gurev Shansa, and Kosulid, Agas Portaglakos, and Kilurit, and Quakeplinata, Winchamakic Concern, Marutron, a hair in his minlum, a Moikas, a coronary, a Yetsan Glare, on Kate Lor, Vanic, Vuniac Concern, a good new Yetsan attack over force. Our son, Cosmwinter and Down. Uh, dear friends, it's a very great pleasure to, for Sabine and I to welcome you all here today to Orson and to have the opportunity of participating with you in the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Family of Concern and to pay tribute to all that you have achieved and to thank you, as I just said in Irish, most profoundly, not just for the work that you've done, but for the work that you continue to do and that is so important. Fifty years ago, going back a great distance in time and space, some of us will still vividly remember the images of starvation and suffering in Biafra broadcast on our television screens just 50 years ago. It was not long after the establishment of television, but it brought through the medium of our television screens in a manner that had never occurred before. The intensity, the scale and depth of a humanitarian crisis, and this was being brought to the attention of the citizens of the world. It's one of, I think, of the great benefits of technology, at times when we sometimes see their disadvantages, that we could say after that, that from that point on, uh, people could no longer affect uh, a kind of disinterest or that they hadn't the information of what was taking place in the world in some of the most sensitive parts. In Ireland, the understanding of the nature of the crisis was deepened and resonated because of the presence of so many Irish members of the missionary orders in Nigeria, and in particularly by the very strong presence of the Holy Ghost Fathers and Holy Rosary Sisters in Biafra. And even as the blockade of Biafra began <coughs> to take place in late 1967, a gathering of people took place in the home of John and Cale Lachlan in Northumberland Road where they heard the first-hand testimony of John's brother, Father Raymond Kennedy, who was a Holy Ghost father, was one of those who had borne witness to the suffering in Biafra. And that interdenominational group of trade unionists and clergy and citizens that were in attendance resolved there and then to establish an organisation Africa concern to raise funding and send supplies. It would involve breaking the blockade uh, to the, bring supplies to the starving people of Biafra. And within two weeks of the appeal commencing in June 1968, over £10,000 had been collected. Within a month, the figure had risen to 62000 And by the middle of August 1968, the target of £100,000 had been reached. And by February 1969, over a quarter of a million pounds. This was, of course, a testament not only to the labours of the organisers of the appeal, but also to the spirit of generosity and solidarity which they had awakened in the Irish people. I think in 68, 69 too, as well, they were 
making a resonance with the experience of the Irish people themselves in conditions of famine, migration and conflict. But with the fall of Port Harcourt in May 1968, <coughs> Biafra was completely isolated from the outside world by a Nigerian Federal Army armed with advanced Soviet and British weaponry. It was Father Tony Byrne and two remarkable and courageous brothers from Limerick, Fathers Jack and Dinkus Finucane, who organised the transportation of supplies through this most dangerous of blockades, risking their own lives and indeed drawing upon themselves the censure of officials from a number of governments as they attempted to deliver life-saving food and medical supplies. I think that was a <clears throat> one of our earliest reminders that issues of principle will sometimes require unorthodox methods, <laughs> and whereas orthodox rectitude will sometimes have the effect that is disastrous. All of us who had the fortune to know Jack and Angus Finucane will recall what two unstoppable forces, I think is the best way to describe it, that they were, people whose vision was indeed global in scope, but whose vocation was to help the most vulnerable, irrespective of their religion, ethnicity or nationality. It knew no bounds. And they were not quite the same either. They were different, as we know. I was deeply honoured to be presented with the Concern Worldwide Father Ingus Finucane Award for Services to Humanity by Father Jack Finucane in January of 2014. <coughs> It, it, it was a great pleasure, it, it was a great honour, and I'm deeply humbled by that. The excitement of those early days and the decades that followed have been vividly captured in Tony Farmer's account uh, of the first 30 years of concern, Believing in Action, a truly important piece of Irish social history. I'm so glad that Anne is with us uh, this evening. It is a great sadness that Tony recently passed away, but as I said, I'm delighted that Anne is able to be with us, and I do want to acknowledge Tony's contribution to telling the story of concern this evening. I remember that book very well. I think I was asked to review it for the Tribune, and it was, um, it, it, it was, it was a very important piece of social history. Since those foundational events, Concern has gone through from strength to strength, responding first to the devastating Boca cyclone of 1970, providing medical assistance and training in what were most difficult conditions in the newly independent Bangladesh, and then to so many countries in which people faced the most desperate of circumstances, from the refugee camps of Kampuchea to a Syria wracked by civil war and foreign military intervention. I often think of that, of is it one of the great failures of our generation? And when we look at <coughs> campaigns being carried out as in a surrogate way, and we look at cities and towns in which those places where people lived are reduced to ruins. It was concern who first alerted the BBC to the effects of the terrible famine in Ethiopia in 1973. And I recall that too, and the difficulty that there was in convincing people of the facts which were being <coughs> laid before them. It was concern who brought the return of, to famine in Ethiopia to the attention of the international media a decade later. Spina <coughs> and I are very familiar with Ethiopia, 
because of the long period of Sister Margaret spent in Mechile in Tigray. Your Chief Executive Officer Dominic McSorley, whom I've met, and former CEOs David Baker and Tom Arland, they've gone on to build on the great achievements of those who went before. And it is a testament to the dedication and perseverance of all those who have worked for and with CONCERN over the years that CONCERN has grown to operate in 27 countries with more than 3,900 staff, representing over 50 nationalities, expanding access to education, nutrition and healthcare, and making vital interventions in crisis situations. I have to say as well <coughs> that the expertise and the, I think the competence with which it has been asked to work on United Nations definitions of what is in fact nutrition and so on is a great testament to the high level that has been achieved. I'm also pleased, of course, that a former colleague of ours here in the Oris, Sarah Martin, is among those who are delivering Concern's mission. <laughs> Concern. <laughs> Concern has been to the forefront of addressing what are without doubt the great issues of our time, the vital necessity now more than ever for just and sustainable development. How impressive it is to see old people wearing this, this, so many of the badges. Sabina is very pleased uh, <laughs> as you campaign for this. The challenge of mitigating and adapting to climate change. Last night we had a big meeting here about dealing with the issue of desertification, desertification and the new project for the sowing uh, of trees. But a simple fact reminding us that if one would reach 2% increase in temperature is 4% in Africa, uh, wreaking havoc. I think that the challenge of mitigating and adapting to climate change and the need for us to oppose all of us together, all forms of contemporary xenophobia and racism, and the imperative to welcome those fleeing famine, war, disease, persecution, and increasingly the consequences of environmental degradation. It would be inconceivable that people in Ireland, indeed people in Europe, wouldn't understand migration. Migration is, after all, one of the people that have been migrating all over our planet. But those that I've mentioned are fleeing incredibly difficult circumstances of violence and of, and of degradation. These are the challenges which remain, and they will intensify with population expansion, desertification and forced migration. These are the issues that will shape this century. And one of the great challenges that's facing us is as whether we take the opportunity of seeing and learning from these challenges the necessity of having paradigm shifts in our thinking, enabling us to define issues like development anew, recasting economics and so forth. This is so important. The alternative is to recoil from these challenges in some notion of seeing them as simply security issues. The elimination of global poverty is surely one of the most greatest contributions to global security that can be made. The elimination of all of these other issues I've mentioned as well, uh, they're affecting the most vulnerable people on earth. And future generations will judge us by how we respond. And they will judge us, I think, by the standards such as those that have been mentioned by what Pope Francis has in mind when he writes of a new and universal solidarity, representing values as it does that concerned personnel have been demonstrating for 50 years, 
This is why we're here, all of you together, celebrating uh, a half a century of practicing such values, <coughs> not only through humanitarian work, but also in terms of advocacy, and using that advocacy on a sound basis of scholarship and information, a sophisticated knowledge of both public policy formulation and execution. I had the opportunity to meet some of you at the United Nations Summit on Sustainable Development in New York in September of 2015. And the Sustainable Development Goals constitute an important moral milestone in the development of our planet. They represent perhaps the most comprehensive statement of a shared international commitment. It, I think, the New York Statement and the Paris Statement are the two high points of 2015, and not only of 2015, but of maybe of the last several decades. Because if the goals are pursued and realised, it will represent indeed a new global solidarity. 193 states have resolved to end poverty and hunger, combat inequalities and income and opportunity, to build peaceful, just and inclusive societies, and to create conditions for a shared prosperity. This was a very powerful, significant achievement, and it is appropriate to pay tribute to the diplomacy which in fact delivered such a profound uh, statement. More significant still, of course, was the decision to pursue the goals universally without distinction or resort to what can be false and misleading typologies, which simply divide the world by reference to developed and developing, or north and south, or even in Europe, between northern Europe and Mediterranean, or worse still, between debtor and creditor countries. In our world today, both between and within countries, great wealth exists besides great poverty in the nations of both North and South. There is a South within the strongest economies of the world. And tackling these patterns of inequality and uneven development requires a mobilisation of resources and a change in thinking that can be truly global in scale and ambition and scholarship. The achievement, for example, of the ethical commitment, that scholarship that is necessary, the literacy in economics and the participation of all citizens necessary for us to build an accountable, transparent version of a global economy, one that takes account of the diversity of peoples and cultures. This seems at times to have disappeared. We seek to make it reappear on the horizon of our multilateral institutions, our government's thinking and public discourse. Yet we continue. So this evening I would like to acknowledge yet again the contribution made by CONCERN and the other NGOs through your intellectual work and informed <coughs> advocacy. Humanitarian organisations with an experience of working in countries across the globe often have a valuable and practical experience of the effects of structural inequalities, whether they manifest themselves through moribund national institutions or through an international economic order that continues to privilege the freedom of multinational corporations over peoples. It is sometimes from the NGOs we hear the message of the consequences of extractive industries, the consequences of exclusions, uh, of the, the abuse of resources in some of the countries that could have such a capacity to offer sustainable livelihoods to their people. I think entrenched 
inequalities and injustices seem to be yielding so slowly and painfully to change. But experience has shown that they will and can, with persistent and patient activism, being made to give way. The Sustainable Development Goals in New York were followed by a number of months later, as I have said, by the agreement in Paris at the Paris Climate Conference, which was again such an enormous step forward, one that recognised the demands of climate justice. And indeed it is an issue of justice, intergenerational justice. And as you will know so well, the imperative for survival for so many countries in this century, particularly in many of the countries in which you are active. The decarbonisation of our societies, demanded by the pledge to pursue efforts to limit the global temperature increase to one and a half degrees. And I repeat again that an average of two degrees is in fact four degrees in Africa. And that is in fact where you will see the major... When we think the possibility uh, that <clears throat> approximately that today 40% of the young people under the age of 21 are on the continent of Africa, that you will have 1.6 billion people uh, seeking a livelihood. We should see this as in fact an opportunity to allow on the continent of Africa a new model of humanity, a new connection between ecology, economy and ethics and cultural diversity, rather than seeing it as a source of fear. You know all of this so well, that the imperative for survival for so many people in this century uh, is, is one of, they are in fact fleeing from something for which they have not been responsible. The decarbonisation of our societies that is demanded by the pledge to pursue efforts to limit global temperature increase uh, above, uh, to, uh, to increase it, to, to, uh, to limit the increase to one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will not be easy. Now, can it be made without sacrificing the countries of what I believe it is appropriate to call in this context the global north? For we know that continued greenhouse emission here will have far more devastating effects elsewhere, particularly in the continent of Africa. The moral challenge to us is to turn our commitments into action and be willing to change. Will you, through your work, the work you have done, has crafted a vital bridge between the Irish people and some of the poorest people in our world, and that will not only continue to provide the material resources and the capacity for sustainable development in other countries, but that will, I hope, also equip our country with sufficient mental resources to make the necessary changes to our own patterns of production and consumption that will ensure that the needs of all the peoples of our shared and vulnerable planet are met. And this is so important. I've been speaking about these issues quite globally. I know that there are some of you here who have such direct experience, and there are some of you who will have memories. I remember very well, for example, some of you that I met in, in, in Somalia all those years ago, in Baidoa and in Mogadishu and elsewhere. I don't for a second suggest that these global issues are more important than anything you do. It is by taking all of that into yourself and delivering it in your personal relations as you care for those that you are encountering in the situations that you are so familiar with that you have in fact actually put it all into practice. And when I spoke in January 2014, I recall the words of your patron as he, then, as, as he had been, the late Shemesini, Seamus spoke of the vital solidarity that was demonstrated by organisations such as Concern. He said, 
It stands as a magnificent answer to all the negative thoughts conjured up by the words by Afra, Bangladesh, Ethiopia, Sudan, Cambodia, Somalia, Rwanda, to all the dismaying facts about the materialism of the developed world that causes our belief in the reality of disinterested efforts and altruistic vision to falter. He was saying that it reminds us, as your word does, of what we might be. There is no greater tribute than this, so may I once again arish Gambuikis Luv Asak Medatajendaki, Malam Gamur Arsanabarator Shulfil Ovakwil Shisha, Agaskim Grakas Banata Gokrata Maker Shul Santaki. I thank all those of you who have worked for and with concern for your compassion, your courage, your dedication to supporting the lives and building the capacity of the poorest members of our family, the people of the world. Gurumila Mahdi Claire.